Um, welcome to More Christ. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today, I'm joined by the fantastic Dr. Carl Truman. Carl is a Christian theologian, an author, and an ecclesiastical historian. He's a professor at Grove City College in the States, serving as full professor in their Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Today, we'll be speaking about his magnificent new book, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, subtitled Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. So there's a lot packed into this wonderful book. Um, you open with a simple question, however, how did the statement, a, a woman trapped in a man's body, come to make sense? Can you tell us a bit about why this is such an important question and provide us with a brief uh, synopsis of the book? Sure. Well, it's an important question for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, it's, it's something that has gained plausibility, and indeed more than plausibility, relatively recently. Uh, if you were to ask somebody, say my grandfather, uh, 30 years ago, uh, what the sentence meant, I, th I think he would have burst out laughing. I think he would have regarded it as, as incoherent. And yet today, not only is it considered to be coherent, but increasingly the, the denial of its coherence is considered to be uh, a hateful and egregious act, liable, uh, to, which is liable to make one liable to uh, legal sanctions. Certainly that's the case in, in certain parts of the world now. Uh, and what's fascinating about that is it's not just academics, therefore, who've come to regard this sentence as making sense. It's you know, that, that mythical creature, the ordinary man or woman in the street, who's come to regard it as making sense. And that brings me to the second reason why, why it's interesting. And that is, in order for that sentence to make sense, uh, the culture has to have agreed that a whole host of other things make sense or are true as well. Primarily, I think, the idea that, that what we feel inside that we might say those instincts, that voice of nature in our heart or in our mind uh, has absolute authority over our body. That would be one obvious thing that, that the ordinary man or the woman in the street has to intuitively buy into in order to find that sentence coherent. We could look at it more in more sort of sophisticated way and say we also have to have come to a position where the idea of biological sex and gender are seen as not only separable, but, but essentially unconnected to each other in any necessary way. Uh, so there you have at least two things that have to have taken place in the broader culture, in the broader way people imagine or intuit themselves to be. And that's really what, what drove the, the curiosity aspect of this book. I wanted to know how is it that society makes those shifts on those things? How is it that these things come to be self-evident intuitions in society in a way that they wouldn't have been in the past? And to do that, I have to go back several hundred years. It's, it's very clear that such shifts don't happen overnight. Uh, it may be that the last domino falling only fell yesterday, but the chain of dominoes was started a long time ago. So in the book, I go all the way back to Rousseau. I could have gone back before Rousseau, but I go back to Rousseau in the 18th century and I trace the intellectual aspects of Western culture from Rousseau through the Romantics, through the 19th century, uh, Marx, Nietzsche, 
no, Darwin on into the 20th century, Freud, and then the fusion of Marxism and uh, Freudianism in the new left. And finally, I look at how this has played out, uh, not only in intellectual culture, but also in, in pop culture in the modern day. It's an incomplete narrative. There's a there's a whole story to be told about how technology affects the way we imagine life, how technology plays into this. But, you know, at 400 pages, the book was already too long. So uh, I left the technology story for somebody else. Yeah, marvellous. Thank you, Carol. That's excellent. And um, I think also it builds wonderfully in some of your previous work. Your book, Histories and Fallacies, for example, taught us how to do history well. And there are similar lessons in this book that help us to foment a more robust historical imagination. Why is it so important then for Christians to develop this more historical imagination in wrestling with the notions of the modern self and the key concepts that you discuss in the book? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And again, one of the reasons I wrote the book, I think there's a tendency for us all, not just Christians, but I think for us all to, to tend to focus on the present or the immediate past and tend to focus, therefore, on what I would regard as historical symptoms rather than underlying causes. And if you do that, particularly when it comes to the changes in sexual morality and sexual mores over the last 30, 40 years, everything seems to have come out of the blue and happened very, very fast. And from a Christian perspective, I think that leaves us confused. It could leave us uh, panicking because things seem to be flying out of control. Uh, it can also, on the other side, uh, uh, in an odd counterintuitive way, make us think that the answers are rather simple. You know, in America, it's just a case of electing the right president, getting the right Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at things historically, first of all, it helps you understand their real significance in the broader scheme of human history. Secondly, it allows you to understand how the symptoms we see, the acceptance of homosexuality, the rise of transgenderism, are actually not their own cause. They are deeply embedded in much broader transformations of society. And thirdly, that leads on to us realizing, wow, the, the solution is not simple. The solution is not simply getting the right parliament elected and passing the right laws. Actually, the, the problem has to be addressed at a very, very deep cultural level. So those would be three reasons I would suggest that uh, looking at, at the broader history is important. It's kind of discouraging in some ways, mm -hmm. but I think it's always helpful to have a realistic view of what's going on rather than a naively optimistic one. Yeah, well said, Carl. And um, in chapters one and two, you predominantly look at the work of sociologist Philip Rafe and the philosopher Charles Taylor. This really allows for a lucid narrative, I think, that gets to the crux of the matter of our age, namely what it means to be human in the first place. Um, so just to help us get a grip of your thesis and how you use these terms, what are things like Taylor's expressive individualism and his social imaginary and how do they help us to understand and wrestle with this modern self? Sure. Yeah. The first two chapters are really in some ways laying the foundation for the narrative. I wanted, uh, you know, the narrative required certain theoretical concepts in order to structure it and, uh, and, and demonstrate its logic. So I wanted to get those out the way at the start of the book. Uh, when it comes to expressive individualism, uh, this is, I think, Taylor's great insight uh, that the normative person and what he means, what I mean by that is the normative way that people in the West think about themselves today is that the real you, the real me, is what we feel inside. And authenticity, therefore, 
is found by being able to behave outwardly in a way that reflects that which we feel we are inwardly. The transgender issue would be the most extreme example of this. You know, if someone feels they're a woman inside, but outwardly they possess the sex characteristics of a man, in order for them to be authentic, they need to be able to be accepted by society and behave as they think a woman behaves. If you read the Bruce Caitlin Jenner interview with the American journalist Diane Sawyer from, I think, 2015, it's interesting how uh, Bruce slash Caitlin uses this language of I was living a lie. Now I'm now I'm free to be the real me that I was all along. That's classic expressive individualist language. And you know, before we we adopt the Pharisees, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like these expressive individualists over here attitude. That's all of us to some extent. I, I, I think that's simply a, a, a radical example. But we're all part of that culture where we want to be able to be outwardly that which we feel we are inwardly. Taylor's concept of the social imaginary, it's, it's a slightly awkward phrase. You feel it should be social imagination, I was thinking, but social imaginary. He's trying to get there at the fact that we exist in society and we exist in a way that is often intuitive, that we typically don't think back to first principles to shape the way we behave, to shape that which we believe. We tend to operate on the basis of, of intuitions. Uh, you know, simple example might be walking down the streets of Dublin or London or New York and, and you would stop people and say, you know, is evolution true? Mm-hmm. Most people would probably say, yeah, it's true. If you then said to them, well, can you explain to me the, the complicated genetic process that must take place in order for evolution to be true, that you'd probably draw a blank stare. Yeah. Most people believe evolution because, hey, human beings look like monkeys, world seems to be around for a long, long time. There must be some kind of connection. And that's just one example. But, you know, I'm not picking on that particular category of people because we we all operate on that basis to some extent. You know, why do you think marriage is a good thing? Why do you think family is a good thing? Why do you think friendship is a good thing? Why do you like rugby? You know, why do you enjoy cricket? An awful lot of what we do in life, an awful lot of the things that are most important to us are not things that we have reflected on in terms of first principles. They're things that we've sort of absorbed from the environment around us and have become our intuitions. And one of my arguments in the book is that the the change in sexual morality has not been brought about by arguments. It's really been brought about by a cultural transformation of people's intuitions. Yeah, wonderful. I think that also complements uh, René Girard's work uh, that... um he describes the mob phenomenon and a number of different talks that he's done about that. So um, your work then is more so descriptive than prescriptive, but uh, I want to ask you this from a Christian perspective, what are some of the central ways that our modern beliefs about the South then actually do differ from what God has revealed about who we are in the scripture? And um, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I think the, the question of really asking the question, I suppose, of how does expressive individualism shape modern Christianity. Uh, Now, first of all, I want to say that one of the reasons the book is descriptive is that 
I don't regard expressive individualism, for example, as an unmitigated evil. It, it just is the way things are. And I certainly think there are valuable things that expressive individualism has, has given us. For example, the respect for other individuals, the, the idea of universal human dignity is intimately connected to the stuff that Rousseau is doing in the 18th century. Uh, how has it affected Christianity in, uh, I would say in a good way? And I would say, one of the things that uh, expressive individualism does is by pressing home the importance of the individual, it allows us to capture something of the existential individual urgency of the Christian faith that a Christian, let's say in the 14th century, would not have experienced. You were born in a village, there was one church, you were baptized, you had to go there, you got married there, you died and were buried there. There was no choice, there was no effort involved, we might say, in being a typical Christian in the 14th century. Today, I think that that, that emphasis upon the individual and upon the will and upon decision, that's an important aspect of capturing something in the New Testament. As with so many phenomena in history, of course, expressive individualism is a it's a two sided coin. Uh, where would I say where would I see expressive individualism as having corrupted or distorted Christianity? One of them, I think, is uh, is the way that, you know, if Christianity is a choice helps underline the existential urgency of the New Testament. Christianity as a choice also serves to make it something of a consumer item. Uh, you become a Christian and, hey, you've got a dozen churches, even in your locale, you could choose to go to. That's not so much of a good thing. That, that makes you the king yeah. and, and, not, and not the gospel, not the church. So I'd say that would be one aspect of it. Another aspect, um, a lot of the worship songs, hymns that we now sing. Now, again, the importance of personal experience, it's there in the Bible. The Psalms are full of the psalmist wrestling with issues. Psalm 73, the psalmist is torn up because he sees the wicked prospering mm -hmm. and he's in agonies of soul over this. So there's definitely a personal experiential aspect to the Psalms. But that can be overemphasized when you look at a lot of particularly contemporary worship songs today. They're all about us. And they're all about God being in some ways the giant therapist who helps us realize ourselves, realize our full potential. That also flows over into gospel preaching. You know, I remember when I, when I was first converted, uh, a well-meaning Christian saying to me, uh, God has a great plan for your life. Um, and I'm, I'm almost inclined facetiously now to look back and say, yes, you'll get older and older, your body will break down and then you'll die. You know, that's God's plan for your life. God has a great plan for the church. I think that's where the promises are in the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's not untrue to say that God cares for the individual, but there's that tendency in Christianity today to assume that we as individuals are the center of God's plan and not the church not Jesus Christ. So all of these things, so it, you, know, you can look at each of them and say, there's a good thing there, but there's also a bad thing. And it's when that balance falls out of play that you have difficulties. Hey, amen. It's <laughs> an important reminder. Thank you, Carl. And um, I want to say next, with the some of the conceptual tools in hand that we mentioned, you navigate this development of the modern self in a number of stages. So first, the psychologization of the self, 
second, the sexualization of psychology, and third, the politicization of sex in rough um, categories. So let's begin with the first stage then, if we may, with a discussion of the psychologization of the self with Rousseau, uh, perhaps the most famous, he's most famous for his concept of the noble savage. Why, according to Rousseau, then, are all the vices and immorality of man the products of society? And why is this relevant to your thesis? Yeah, Rousseau, I think, is, is the genius on this point. In his confessions, his autobiography is the, is the great text on this. And it, he starts that by saying, you know, I'm going to write my life story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go inward. And I'm going to write the story of my feelings, because that's where the real me is to be found. That's very much the way we think about ourselves uh, today. He's also famous, of course, his famous statement, you know, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. I say to students at Grove, just because a statement is self-evident nonsense doesn't mean that it isn't believed by a large number of people and it doesn't go on to do a huge amount of damage. Man is clearly not born free. Of all the creatures on the face of the earth, human beings have one of the longest periods of dependency upon their parents. Uh, and if you know statistics are anything to go by, that goes on into your late 20s now. It's getting longer and longer. Man is not born free. He's born very dependent. But if you use that idea, if you let that idea grip your imagination, then it leads you to see all social relations as inherently adversarial and inherently inhibiting of who you really are. And therefore, the political project becomes, you know, trying to get society out of the way to allow you to be who you are. And that's part of the psychologization of the self. You know, the real you is the you that's inside. Everything that flows from your socialization is a fundamental corruption, perversion, or inhib inhibiting of the real you. That grips our imagination today. Uh, you're not the boss of me. You know, that's uh, that's one of the modern catchphrases. Yeah. And I think the, the idea that when stuff goes wrong, well, it's always society that's to blame. That's a default and instinctive reaction. Not entirely untrue, again, as I said about expressive individualism. Uh, brought up in certain backgrounds, people will tend, may tend to go towards certain sins. Uh, but uh, on the whole, the idea that, that uh, it's society has the exclusive responsibility for screwing you up, that's a bad one, and it really stems from Rousseau. Yeah, excellent. And then how does this trend continue in the romantics? And um, does this history serve to undermine our kind of, I guess, naive belief that some of these hippie ideas only really came into currency in the 60s? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the hippies are really just the, the romantics of, you know, 150 years on without the ability to write the great poetry or paint the great paintings <laughs> on the whole, you know, um, with the best will in the world, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album is not Wordsworth's Prelude or Shelley's Mont Blanc, I'm afraid. So, uh, uh, the romantics, what the romantics are wrestling with really is, is the aftermath of the French Revolution. The French Revolution, the triumph of reason leads to terrible bloodshed, which raises the question of, well, you know, having got rid of, of, of traditional religious authority, how do we make men and women moral? And the romantics really take their cue from Rousseau say by, by going inwards, by using art to try to recapture something of that authentic, original humanity. Uh, 
And so they, they continue to use this inner space that Rousseau has emphasized as a way of, of thinking about making human beings moral. That, of course, rests upon the idea that there is such a thing as human nature that possesses a moral structure. Uh, Rousseau's idea is if we can get rid of the corruptions of society, guess what? It'll just leave us all empathetic to each other. We'll all kind of, you know, feel empathy. If you see somebody suffering, our heart will go out to them and we'll act to alleviate their suffering. There is such a thing, in other words, as pristine human nature there somewhere that can be more or less recovered. That's blown apart in the 19th century by uh, really the, the triumvirate I pick on. I could have picked on others, but these are the three I think most influential in their different ways. Marx, Nietzsche, and Darwin. All three of them in their different ways essentially say, human beings have no built-in end. There's no moral structure to human nature that can be abstracted from actual human society, actual human beings. And that, of course, you know, uh, Nietzsche is the man who sees this most clearly. That blows out of the water this idea that just getting back to pristine human nature will make us moral. Nietzsche says, no, no. Mm -hmm. There is no human nature. There is no universal human nature to which you as an individual are morally accountable. You are free to make it up as you go along. So the, the romantic project is really shattered, I think, by the philosophical and scientific developments of the 19th century. And then you get Freud. Freud comes along and he puts another sort of dagger into the romantic corpse, even though he's very influenced by the romantics. Freud says, you know, that, that inner space, Rousseau's right on the inner space, that, that psychology is the key, but it's very dark, actually left to our own devices. We're not going to be these noble savages who just go around feeling empathy. We're going to be those savages that go around raping and pillaging and murdering to our heart's content because that's who we really are inside. So with Freud, the whole picture gets very, very dark. Yeah. And um, are there any examples then which come to mind in the social imaginary and popular culture which might help us to uh, get a handle on that? how we instinctively view the world in the terms from Nietzsche, Darwin, Freud now? I think the, the whole tendency towards uh, the relativization of, of morality is, is a kind of Nietzschean move. And when you think that a lot of the, the defaults now, when somebody tries to propose a a particularly a traditional moral position, not so much some of the trendy ones emerge, but if someone was to say, you know, marriage is to be between a man and a woman uh, and sex is to be confined within that relationship, you're probably going to find people pushing back on the grounds as well, that's oppressive. That's stopping people enjoying themselves. You're really just trying to stop people being happy you're making a power bid to try to impose your way as normative over them. That's a very Nietzschean kind of critique, uh, that old idea. You know, well, th that's true for you. Mm -hmm. it, it works for you, but it, it's not true for me. That's a Nietzschean move as well, because for Nietzsche, uh, the whole idea of, uh, uh, of how you behave and act is you should be a work of art, be whatever you want to be. If it works for you, that's great. If doing something else works for somebody else, that's great too. They shouldn't be beholden to you and you shouldn't be beholden to them. So the movement away from truth as, as what I would describe as a kind of metaphysical reality to something that is relative, pragmatically useful, and often seen by others as a manipulative power play, 
that's a kind of Nietzsche move. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Carl. And um, then moving on to stage two, you show that Freud was successful in restoring sex to the center of how we think about who we are. And um, I want to ask you, broadly speaking, how did he do this and why was it so important that he used um, scientific rather than philosophical language to achieve this? I, I mean, I think the, the the reason why Freud does it, he's part of a, you know, Freud is the most famous, but he's part of this rising movement of psychoanalysis in the, in the 19th century. And the probably the, the most significant, I think the most significant psychoanalytic moves Freud makes are relative to the, to the sexuality of children. We see in the 19th century a move away from uh, children's sexuality being seen as uh, as wicked to being seen as a medical thing and then being normalized at the hand of hands of freud i think that's a very very uh, important move because that really sets up the play for a lot of the political debates we have today which tend to revolve around the respective rights of government versus parents over guess what the sexual education of children the use of the scientific idiom, I think, is is very important. Now, I don't think Freud is engaging in a in a cynical play. Hey, let's use science to persuade people. My, the, my position, I think, he really believes that. But the scientific idiom has has really, since the nineteenth century, uh, come to to grip the social imaginary, the moral imagination. We're recording this in a time of COVID. Uh, how many times have we heard? somebody start a sentence on the television with the experts say what they mean by that is the medical experts say and if you listen carefully often the medical experts are not simply describing a situation they're also prescribing policies well strictly speaking science just explains stuff you know science can tell you how to save a life but it can't tell you why a life is worth saving mm. But we see science has sort of had this, I'd say this sort of creep effect, whereby it has become the, the most plausible idiom by which we might say the elite classes, the professional classes, the commanding classes of society speak. And, and Freud is, is right in the middle of that. When he's able to, in effect, put, I would say, you know, the Marquis de Sade's thinking into a scientific idiom, it becomes a whole lot more plausible. It comes to grip the uh, the social imaginary precisely because of the authority that society invests intuitively in the idiom of science. Yeah, excellent. I think um, something commensurate with your work is the ideas of William Kavanaugh, who I had on my program recently. He talked about in Western Europe how the holy rather than going away in disenchantment purely it actually migrated to the nation state and i think you see that new priesthood element to um, the certain scientific classes and everything in line with your book and um i want to ask you next then about the, the third stage and a bit more about this politicization of sex so you make clear that the, the sexual revolution is propelled by the conviction that individual happiness is also the key to political liberation with the rise then of critical theory how are the final pieces of the puzzle now in place for a kind of perpetual revolution, I guess? Yeah, the, the origins of critical theory are interesting. I and mean, essentially, they, they emerge out of, uh, well, two, two sides, I would say. One hand, there's a, 
there's a group of Marxists in the 1930s who, who revisit Hegel and the Hegelian roots of Marx, uh, using particularly some manuscripts that are published, I think originally in the Soviet Union, the, the manuscripts of 1844, which I think are some of the most interesting works that Marx produces, where he's really wrestling with Hegel relative to the kind of political and economic problems he's seeing in Europe at the time. So you have a group of men uh, interested in this, this early Hegelian Marx. You also have the issue at the time of why hasn't the revolution happened in Germany? Germany has a developed industrialized working class. It's lost a war and its economy is in the tank for pity's sake. If you can't have a Marxist revolution in Germany in 1919, 1920 onwards, you can't have a Marxist revolution anywhere, except you do have one in the Soviet Union and that's a peasant society. It should never have happened there. Well, one of the answers to this that the, uh, the so-called Frankfurt School uh, develop is, is the result of fusing together this Hegelian Marx and Freud. Now, the Hegelian Marx, the Marxists are very interested in spirit, very interested in the psychology. And Freud gives them the, the kind of the content for this psychological interest. And the answer they come up with, which sounds, uh, you know, rather simplistic, it will put this way, is that, well, you know, the bourgeois family uh, trains uh, little kiddies to, to love and fear the authoritarian father. And working class has a strong uh, family structure. And basically what you're getting in the working classes and the lower and the lower middle classes are lots and lots of children being uh, trained to obey the strong father. That's why they vote for Hitler and Mussolini and not for the communists. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of the story of the, of the development of, of the new left. Drilling down into the details, where that, where that starts to kind of become interesting from the perspective of my narrative is the question then becomes, so how do we get the working classes and the lower middle classes to realize the problem? Well, if the problem is the family, what is the family's primary means of imposing, reinforcing, corralling, uh, instantiating its authority? Sexual morality, the sexual morality of the nuclear family. So we need to shatter the sexual morality of the nuclear family. We need to attack bourgeois sexual morality as that which is politically oppressive. And that sort of sets the play for, certainly for early critical theory. Uh, later critical theory, we're, we're seeing it today in a sort of critical race theory and things like that, is, is less economically oriented. It's sort of, for all of the cultural Marxist rhetoric that's hurled against it, it's actually, I think, less culturally Marxist and more sort of culturally Nietzschean in some ways. That's what it's done is it's essentially argued that uh, that society as a whole exists to normalize certain power structures. And the way to, to destroy that is to, is to get at those power structures in some way, to destabilize the truth claims that are being made. Yeah, excellent. You're sort of hinting at a, this question a little bit, but Vody Bauckham and people like that have critiqued uh, critical theory and said, about eth they've called it ethnic Gnosticism and used these different terms and contrasted it with the Bible's picture. What are some of the key reasons in your view that it should be concerning for the church then, either that older critical <clears throat> theory or the more recent um, critical race theory and so on? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think I, I would preface all this by saying that I think the whole debate, as it's been set up, particularly in the States, has got very pro-polarized and very unnuanced. You know, I was laughing with somebody this week and saying, you know, American Christianity seems to be divided between those who think racism is the only sin that exists mm -hmm. and those who think it's the only sin that doesn't exist. You know, that's the kind of the, the polarization. <laughs> I think... Uh, what, what concerns me about critical race theory and the way that I, you know, I'm not going to say that, that there are evangelical leaders who are wholeheartedly buying into it, but I think of buying elements of it that are problematic is that ultimately when you look at critical theory, they're already predicated on the idea that the people with power are bad and the people without power are good. The people at the center are bad. The people at the margins are good. Now, that's just the raw model that is you know, extrapolated over it's over put over race it can be put over sexuality it's it's a model that that is easily exportable to a whole heap of things and and i would say that really from a christian perspective we cannot simply have models of cultural critique whereby victim equals good, victimizer equals bad, without first setting those concepts within a broader moral category. If you like, our morality is not determined by the categories of victim and victimizer. Our notions of victim and victimizer need to be determined by our prior moral categories. So uh, on the one hand, I think there is, you know, it, it's very good that there's a debate and a discussion going on about race in American Christianity at the moment. And, and I, yeah, it saddens me that the rhetoric on both sides is, is so, sounds cliche, I don't mean this is a pun, but it's so black and white, it's so unnuanced. I do think there's an important debate to be had. On the other hand, I think we need to be very careful that in addressing the issue of race, we don't end up legitimating a, a form of hermeneutics and a form of church culture, which sacralizes victim and victimizer without first of all establishing a moral framework for being able to parse those particular categories yep most important thank you carl and um dr neil chenvey wrote a favorable review an excellent review of your book recently and he was already within that review sort of calling for a sequel <laughs> on some of those issues like race and everything so you've written some excellent articles about that and i'd commend those to people as well but um would you like to in the future write about some of those issues or is there anything that you're working on at the moment or you feel the passion to get involved with <laughs> well I, I published an article this week through first things that it's in the print edition but it went up online on uh, evangelicals and race theory that's uh, i gather's got me in a lot of hot water on twitter <laughs> but as i never look at twitter i'm, I'm only <laughs> vaguely aware of that um, race is not my big interest i i wrote that article because uh, I was persuaded that it was an important one to write. My, my real interest is the LGBTQ plus stuff. So it is not my intention to, uh, to uh, tank my career on the issue of race, which, you know, is a little bit like uh, the old Northern Ireland office was for the British government. You know, when you were prime minister, you put your enemy in the Northern Ireland office because you knew it was the end of their career at that yep. point. So I hope to get out of this, uh, this alive with my career intact. My, my real focus is on the LGBTQ stuff, where I've done most of my reading uh, and where I think uh, a lot of the the most acute pastoral problems 
uh, being faced by the church. I think and I hope that the race issue can and will be resolved at some point in the church. I think that the, the LGBTQ plus issue is going to be around, at least the LGB part of that is going to be around for a long time. And that's going to be a pressing pastoral and political issue for the church, at least for the rest of my lifetime, probably indefinitely. Uh, so that's where I want to focus my major attention. Yeah, marvellous. And I think your book really serves as well in that respect and um, highlighting in some ways that um, the race issue has actually been something of a um, uh, Trojan horse, I guess, for the sexual issues. And you see people coming in with trans lives matter and using a lot of the victim rhetoric, which speaks, I guess, to your points about let's not deify those sort of concepts and look beyond them and take us deeper. And again, I think your, your work does a wonderful job of that. So um, thank you so much for writing it, Carol. Oh, thanks. And I think the whole concept of intersectionality in some ways is the sort of the logical next step. I mean, if not the next step, it is the place where we are now, but you can see how that emerges when victim victimizer discourses of power become the dominant thing. Uh, things get both more complicated and simpler at the same time. Mm -hmm. You develop this complicated uh, uh, framework for understanding these issues, but they all boil down to who has power and who doesn't. Yep. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today about this book, Carl, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I recommend that everyone go out and buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever they get their books. And thank you so much for joining me today and God bless you. Thanks very much for having me on.